there. How do we cultivate the ability to hold two opposite experiences of reality at the same time and thereby somehow get closer to the truth in between? How do we overcome the limitations of language in describing the ineffable while still appreciating its analytic function? If we can use language in communication with others, like multiple fingers pointing at the moon, to literally round out all of our understanding, how do we handle alternate voices that may not even be pointing at the moon, but at the sun or at birds flying by? And how is this issue relevant to the transmission of authentic but ever-changing Chinese medicine to the West and to its biomedicalization? On a totally different note, sorry, I can't help that one. What do you do when a person won't stop singing? Is the Western mind different from the Eastern mind? Or are there just different levels of truth and complexity that are to be found in any scientific and medical paradigm? And how do postmodernism, differential diagnosis, Taoist cultivation, authority, Samadhi and Humpty Dumpty and the six warps, the Liu Jing, fit into this conversation? Lastly, how do we express, cultivate, revise and share our expertise with compassion rather than righteousness? That's what we are discussing in today's episode of A Pebble in the Cosmic Pond, titled Truth in East and West and in Between. I'm your host, Dr. Sabina Wilms, and I'm joined today, as so often, by Leo Locke, resident purveyor of multiple perspectives, and our Taoist sage, Dr. Brenda Hood, among the seven fools of the bamboo grove that make up the core of our Pebble in the Cosmic Pond team. Before we get into the conversation, I'd like to remind you to sign up for my newsletter at happygoatproductions.com slash connect to stay in touch. Also, please rate, review, and share this podcast wherever you can, and check out the show notes if you want to learn more. Two more things. If you can't wait until next moon, the next new moon for the next episode to drop, you can always become an Imperial Tutor member to listen to the exclusive Imperial tutorial episodes that drop every full moon, in addition to all sorts of other benefits like relevant translations. Found out, find out more at happygoatproductions.com slash imperial tutor. And second, my two-year-long Triple Crown Classical Chinese Training Program starts this September 14 with the Foundations course. If you're at all interested in learning classical Chinese, check it out at translatingchinesemedicine.com and get in touch with me. Thank you for listening and have fun now. So yeah, Brenda wanted to talk about truth today, and I kind of forgot what it was, but um, it was about truth in East and West. Brenda, do you do you want to explain where you were going to go with this, or why you wanted to have this conversation? Do well, I just think that the idea of truth is a very important one because I think the Eastern idea of truth and the Western idea of truth, there is actually a great big difference between them. And in particular, the relationship that we have to truth. Um, in the West, we have this idea that truth is absolute. Whereas in the East, it's not so clear that they consider truth to be absolute. There are aspects of truth which are absolute, but in general, truths are much more relative. And there is a recognition, especially for people who are cultivators, that you have 
personal truth that is relative to you and which can be taught to others, but when you get closer and closer to what they might consider a more absolute truth, all of a sudden you get to a point where you're no longer able to verbalize what's going on. And the only way to transmit the truth is to lead people to a position in their life, in the way of thinking through various techniques that allow the person themselves to intuit the truth rather than being able to actually verbally express it in words or even in a text. And so when you read a lot of these texts that I would consider to start pointing closer and closer to the truth, there's always, it is and is not kind of language, which I believe to a Western trained mind is very confusing because how can it be both? In Asia, however, and China and Chinese medicine and all of those texts that I spent a lot of time reading and looking at, being able to hold two complementary aspects, two juxtaposed aspects in your mind at the same time is not a contradiction. It's actually how you get to the truth because this idea of the, you know, the Taiji symbol where you have the black side and the white side and the black side has a white dot in it and the white side has a black dot in it. And, and it's the, this idea that this juxtaposition and the dynamic between the juxtaposition of these two opposites somehow enables us to get beyond the opposites and see what has then created the opposites, which is a little bit closer to the truth. But our experience of reality is actually the opposites. We can't even talk about things unless we actually can compare it to something that we have already perceived or which is already in our language and language itself is really interesting because really what it is, is just ways of pointing to the ineffable, ways of pointing to the moon. But we're so focused on the fingers that are pointing to the moon that we fail to see that they're actually just tools to try and point us beyond the words themselves to a perception that somebody had way back when. And if we can get beyond that, all of a sudden we can see a very, very different reality. And so in Zen, you're probably better able to talk about this, Leo, in a minute. But in Zen, they talk about first you see a mountain, and then the middle stage is then you see the not mountain. And then finally, when you've realized, then you go back to being able to see the mountain. But you're a your perception of the mountain is no longer the same as it was when you first started, when you could only see the mountain, and you could not see that the mountain was both a mountain and not a mountain. Leo, do you have something to say on this topic? Yeah, um, I find that fascinating, just listening to you, mm. because I was trying to think about what is what is the Chinese term or what is the Chinese word for it when you say when we say truth or the truth and how we conceptualize mm. it in English right what is it in modern Chinese what's the correlate in middle Chinese and old Chinese so I did a little digging I was like oh usually in modern Chinese when we talk about the truth like um, Brenda was talking about or in common English speaking or speech is corresponds to a, a compound called Zhen Li, right? Truth is Zhen Li and is philosophical. If you look it up on Wikipedia or Baidu is, is there. It correlates to this Western idea. The Western side of it says truth and then the Chinese side says Zhen Li. So then I went digging. I said, oh, what is Zhen Li? Zhen Li only appeared, uh, I think the earliest I could find is uh, the 
爆铺子的的呃葛洪 right? In the Jin Dynasty, that was the earliest. Han and prior, there's no such compound.、Mm-hmm. No such thing as Zhen Li, right? And then in the Tang Dynasty and the Song Dynasty, Zhen Li becomes more and more prevalent, and it appeared very prominently in British、uh, Buddhist literature. Majority of it, if you go to Ganripo and is uh and search for it, a majority of it concentrates around Tang Dynasty in all the translated sutra, right? And then the the Neo Confucius, uh, Zhu Xi start using that term as well. But Han and prior, there's no such compound, right? And then. My impression of reading through, say, the literature of you know Warring States and Han period is like, truth is really not that important to the early Chinese thinkers. It's almost like what?、Mm-hmm. How, how is it relevant、mm-hmm. in those for those like for Laozi and Zhuangzi? They, they never care for it, right? If you read through our earliest、uh, medical、yeah. literature, eh. They're really not concerned about what is true or not true. Is it, does it work or does it not work? If you don't, if you follow it, will you thrive? If you don't follow it, will you die? It's almost like that kind of framing. It's like in the Chinese mind, the early, especially the early Chinese mind, really doesn't care for it. I think, in my impression, it's like. Yeah, <laughs> it's just not their focus. Well, everything you, always changes, right? Yeah, but then, then something happened, right? All of a sudden, they care about it. Because I think, from my sort of more the Buddhist Sanskritic Pali background, I can see why. Because you can see that in the early earliest strata of、uh, Buddhism, which is. Most people believe is the Pali Canon. They don't care about the truth either. Is when you go to the Mahayana people, the Sanskritic tradition, then all of a sudden the Sat Dharma happen, right? Sat, the 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 what is true and Asat, what is not true. That is the focus of the the Mahayana Sanskrit. Uh, tradition, so you see that term appearing in a lot of、uh, titles for Buddhist scriptures, right? And then you start to see Zhen Li, Zhen Li, Zhen Li happening in the Tang Dynasty of all the translations of sutras. I think, without you know doing much research, that's my impression. I think there is an Indic influence that. All, all of gradually, the Chinese become more like, well, what is true and what is not true, you know. But even in the Zen tradition, they don't really talk about what is true and not true. They just say, what is your original face, right? They want to see the original. Want you to see the original face. But is that original face true or not true?、Eh. <laughs> Again, they don't really care for it. Right, so they don't frame. I think Chinese don't frame、uh, the whole issue that way, and they're not that concerned about true or not true. It's just not how we frame things. So that's kind of my reaction to Brenda's.、Uh, I, I just find it so fascinating, you know, the the difference between the. Okay, I、I、know Brenda wants to respond to this, and I want to respond to it, Brenda. But I want to. I want to. I want. To hear both of you in response to this, explain the word "genren,"、uh, which is the true person or perfected person. But first, I, I just want to put it out there so we don't forget it, because that's my big question for you two. Okay, Brenda. Sorry, you you sidetracked my thought. Oh、um, no! Oh no! Um. I guess you know, for me, this idea of truth, as understood from the West, and the relationship to truth as I've seen it played out in 
for me, particularly Chinese medicine, because that's where I've spent a lot of my time, in addition to Taoism, but it has real consequences when you talk about Chinese medicine, because we're in the process of importing the theories and techniques of Chinese medicine from the East into the West. And because in the West there is such a heavy emphasis on the absoluteness of truth, you're seeing it really beginning to warp how Chinese medicine is understood by people in the West. So you see people beginning to try and make Chinese medicine more and more concrete. You're beginning to see a real what I would call westernization of Chinese medicine so that people then begin to introduce more and more biomedicine into that whole theoretical framework of Chinese medicine as though when you talk about Chinese medicine spleen, you're actually talking about many people argue about, well, is it really the spleen or is it the pancreas? And there's these long involved drawn out comments and what you can see from these these arguments that people are having that there is a distinct difference in how they're thinking so in the one where they're trying to nail it down to the pancreas it's this idea of a concrete truth. Well, the Chinese, you know, they were simple in those ancient times and they didn't understand like we modern people do. And we know that really at the end of the day, the spleen is talking about the pancreas, even though they didn't really talk about the pancreas until the Ming dynasty in China. But we know better because we're modern and we understand that truth is absolute and concrete. But if you approach Chinese medicine from that point of view, all of a sudden you completely lose all of the magic because in the way that you utilize Chinese medicine in the clinic and in the way you have to learn to understand, the truth is not so clear. And it doesn't matter that it's not so clear. In Chinese medicine, it's all relative and it's talking about multiple dimensions often at the same time. So we can talk about the physical level, we can talk about the chi level, we can talk about the mental-emotional level, we can talk about the spiritual level. And they can all be included in the same discussion when we talk about the spleen. And it doesn't matter, because what it is, is it's trying to express a relationship between this item that we have specifically pointed out and all of the other aspects, which makes up a complete whole. And so in that, what is true? And it's a really big question. And if you don't understand that, and you still try and do Chinese medicine based on spleen is pancreas, from a Western perspective, then a lot of that ability to actually address splenic issues becomes lost. First of all, you can't make your proper diagnosis. Then how do you actually treat this individual? <coughs> like what happens? Some person, um, and this is actually a case study that I heard about when I was in China. All of a sudden, somebody just won't stop singing. La, 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 la. like all day long, just singing, 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 singing. And in the West, what do you do? Well, this person obviously is cuckoo and therefore needs to be somehow medicated. But in Chinese medicine, there's a lot more nuance. And all of a sudden, it's like, well, this person has an issue with singing. Where do we go from here? We have these big tables, which have all of these actions that say, well, these actions are associated with this organ or this element. And if you understand the multidimensionality and the relativeness of these categories to each other in the bigger picture, all of a sudden you can say, well, this person is singing. Uh, this person has other perhaps psycho-emotional issues. Well, where would I go from Chinese medicine if this person just won't stop singing? And ultimately, the way that it was addressed was they drained heat from the spleen. Because singing is the sound of the spleen. And if you're so focused on truth as an absolute, how are you even going to diagnose that?
Leo? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, so so definitely there's a huge difference. Like I said before, it's just so interesting to observe the what the how the west the, the typical western mind is concerned about. It's like the 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 western mind, the chinese mind, what is important and what we pay attention to can be very different. It's like the mode of paying attention to things mm. or simultaneously holdings right seems like the western mind is more focused and more narrow and almost like laser light and wants to convene to one one truth <laughs> right so one uh, essential piece of truth or whatever where the chinese mind is more dispersed it's more kind of global. Now, I want to push back against this contrast between East and West because mm -hmm. I went to college and I got my PhD at a time when postmodernism was really, really big. And I mm. remember... Um, as grad students asking Professor Robert Jamela, who is like the who was at the time the world authority on Chinese Buddhism, and we asked him once point blank in a upper level graduate seminar, "Do you believe?" Because we were discussing truth in, from the Buddhist in the in these complicated sutras, Chinese sutras, and we asked him point blank. Dr. Jamela, do you believe in truth? And he was very clear. Oh, yeah, I'm Catholic. I believe in truth. And we were all like, mm. oh, my God, he believes in an absolute truth. Because we were in this postmodern. I was taking classes on postmodernism. So, you know, there is a, in, there is a, I think um, in academia, there has been this Evolution, where there is a recognition in history, for example, that there is no such thing as one true side, true story of history. So there's all these different narratives that the way people now write history is they bring narratives, they bring different voices from, you know, farmers and women and barbarians. And, and so I think contrasting east and west might be a little bit of a i mean I, I i know where you're going with this and i think it's 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 worth I, it makes perfect sense that there is a cat that there is a real distinction between chinese philosophy chinese science and western science but I think the East-West distinction, it, and it might be a biomedicine, it might be a modern science, which is now being challenged in the West as well. I think that it's not so clear, especially when it applies to actual things going on in the world, and in medicine in particular, because truth and your understanding of truth is used as a weapon you know this gold standard mm. of evidence based and what is that it's this artificial experiment with blind and double blind and you know if you can't use that experiment then somehow mm. answers that you come up with are lesser than if you can use these so-called scientific experiments to figure out what's going on and we can talk about that until yeah. the cows come home because yeah. there's a lot of opinions on that and there's a lot of history on that and a lot of infighting on that but the problem is is that that particular standard is extremely difficult to apply to Chinese medicine and some of these more traditional medicines because that's not the way they think and it's not the way that they work. And because many things are multidimensional, multifaceted, trying to use the scientific method in order to narrow down 
something in the same way as they have been using it to try and get to certain quote-unquote fixed truths in reality in biomedicine, it just doesn't work as well. They did this experiment a few years ago and they did, I don't know, 10,000 people and they checked out whether or not large intestine 11 was good for lowering blood pressure. And to them, it was like, well, obviously, you know, this point doesn't work at all for lowering blood pressure. Whereas a Chinese medicine practitioner would look at that and think that's a silly experiment because <laughs> when do you ever use large intestine 11 on its own to lower blood pressure? And maybe that point is not appropriate for use in this particular individual in this particular case. Like, what happens if the high blood pressure is related to a kidney deficiency? Using large intestine 11 is not going to have a very good effect, if any effect at all. Do, do you know what I mean? And so it's not like this point does that. It's not, you know, acupuncture needle, press a button, and then all of a sudden something miraculous happens, or acupuncture, press a button, and nothing happens, and therefore it's completely useless. But, but these then, are the arguments that are being yeah. thrown at Chinese medicine and some of these more traditional medicines. And so the concept of how you understand truth and how you investigate truth are very, very relevant to the practice of Chinese medicine boots on the ground. But then Leo brought up in our last conversation how there are different levels of practice and different levels of teaching and that there's low, a lower level. I, I guess I'm kind of defending Western science because I think the same thing is true in Chinese medicine that is also true in Western science and Western academia, where remember, Leo, in our last conversation, you brought up that there is a a mode of teaching and transmission where for a lower level or a beginning practitioner, they need to learn certain points or certain protocols to concretely treat a disease as opposed to the master physician who deals with the present moment and, and has mastered the, the art of medicine, that higher level. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. The, we talked about the different levels of diagnosis, differential diagnosis, right? Basically, if we talk about it again, it's basically when you, when you teach or train a particular group of students, I'm not talking about modern times i'm talking about all times throughout time yes. right when you yes. when you when you educate your students the first level of uh training is always not always but the students will say well my mother has a headache has a headache what points do you use and we still hear it today on social media and in professional groups that's the first thing they say my patient has blah, blah, blah. What point do you use? What formula do you use? There's always the first level, the beginner's level. And it's not just a Western thing. It's also, no, it's not. It's also it's not. part of the Chinese tradition. That's, that's, yeah. that's my point. Yeah, Here. and then when things don't work, then the teachers say, oh, if the teacher is better, and they'll say, yeah, because under headache, we, have, yeah. we actually differentiate 10 types of headaches. This is how you differentiate them, and this is how you treat them differently. And then on top of that, if there's another level of nuance, then the teacher will reveal it again. So there's multiple level of sophistication or nuanced in differential diagnosis. Really, is differential diagnosis. Mm. And I, right? I want to make clear that I'm not saying that one method is better than the other and that we should only go in one direction or another. Like I'm not saying Chinese medicine and the Eastern way of thinking is the only way to understand the world or that Western biomedicine or Western ways of thinking are completely bad. That's not my point at all. Mm -hmm. What I'm saying is that they have consequences and that ultimately – if you want to become a realized human being, if you wish, in the cultivation sense, you actually have to master both. Yeah. You actually yeah. have to stand and understand both. Because if you look at how they work, 
it's a little bit like one, each of these is much more slanted towards the left or the right side of the brain. And in order to fully understand Chinese medicine, you have to use both the logical, rational, the divisive, split into discrete pieces understanding of the world and the integrative, abstract, look at the big picture way of the world, bring them together in yourself so that you can actually form a gestalt and actually become more than either of them so that you're able to then utilize everything of who you are when you are in the clinic that has then become trained on both sides to become as good as you can get them to be. And that requires this ability to be able to relax into one or the other without needing to completely grasp on and hold on to them and never ever let them go. I love where this conversation is going. Yeah. In fact, I actually, really like that this. what Brenda just described, I would say, is the core teaching of the Buddha. Because a lot of people don't understand that that is what he taught. I think that's why he taught. If you read the sutras in the original teachings, that's why he taught. The ability to chop things up, which usually is grouped under vipassana, and the, and the ability to sum things up and correlate things, which is the samadhi, which is really the prefix V and the prefix sum. Even in Sanskrit and Pali, it's the, it has the same origin as you know European Greek and Latin. Sum. Sum to sum things up. S-A-M, sum, is to put things together. The, that's the meaning of the, the use of the prefix in Sanskrit and Pali. You put things together, like hum. So you use the V to chop things up. So Humpty Dumpty, you know, fell to the ground and broke into a million pieces. You use the V, and then you sum it back up. You glued it back together, which is, I think, what Brenda talked about: is the ability to break things apart, analyze things, pierce through the illusion or the things that trap us. And then after you chop it into pieces, you put things back together again in use more useful ways. So well, this and then you begin to see that what it is that you have separated out is part of a greater whole. Yeah. And depending yeah. on which level you are looking at it from, you see that a human being is part of the greater whole of humanity, is part of the greater whole of the planet, part of the, you know, the greater whole of the universe, however you want to do that. And so there's all these levels of relativity Yes. Which yeah. you can then divide out because dividing out actually has utility. Absolutely. It's useful. Yes. It's, it's, it, what pe where people get stuck on is they get stuck on a certain mode of dividing and putting things together and they call that the truth. Right? Early Buddhism is, is uh, cautious of that because that's what we call bhava, the fashioning of the worlds. Right? Because when the Buddha was asked how did he reach the other side he says well i reached the other side of the flood without moving forward without moving backward without moving sideways without moving up without moving down i that's how i crossed the flood because he's not stuck on the fashioning of things because like we talk about depending on how you divide and how you put things together we can fashion all kinds of theoretical systems and perceptions. And what Brenda was pointing out of this particular biomedical or Western way of looking at the function of large intestinal leaven is really one way of fashioning things and which one group of people call the only way, the truth. Well, and it becomes very, very dangerous. Yes. It and has, when I, yes. It and I want to... Yeah, go. Sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. So, I think I want to point out, same thing can happen anywhere. Of course. And we see that in Chinese medicine as well. People can capitalize on that need to have an authoritative figure and uh, these secretly, whether it's secretly transmitted or validated by science, there's always this need within the human 
realm, the human communities, to to gear or to to be uh, calm by somebody claiming to have some type of of. Authority, yeah, absolute authority. Sometimes, almost cult-like, right? And when we see that. So that's why I, I appreciate yeah. the Buddhist perspective. Is like, yeah. be cautious, be very cautious, because when you are looking at something which is really, really clearly, you know, cultish and authoritative and narrow, be aware of other people doing the same thing on that side, which you feel affiliated to. So there's all these traps and there are these reminders and warnings to be, yeah, you can fashion it that way and the other side looks this um, attractively and seductively oppositional and therefore you direct all your anger and criticism against that mode. But oftentimes people forgot that there are similar things festering on this side which you feel like, oh, this is my home, this is my people. Original Buddhism really is very alert on that. It's like all manners of fashioning is conditional. Be very, very careful because things can switch very quickly, right? Don't get attached and become very aware of the intention and the limitation of various forms of fashioning. Of and I really call, see this yeah. in translation, like mm. where people get so hung up on this is the correct way of translating a term like Li, whether it's principle or structure or how there's no way of translating Li or Jing, like channel, canon, warp, the Liu Jing. The, the, what is it in the Shanghan Lun? Are they the six? They're not even there is not even a word for it in the Chinese, right? Mm. And they're the six syndrome, the six levels, the six warps. And there's all this discussion on on social media about you're wrong. It's not six syndromes, which I think is a really valid point that Taiyang is a term that is not a a syndrome is a definition of a pathological process. And Taiyang, that's not what the Chinese word is. It, it's a constellation. And levels is wrong, too, because you're not going from the most superficial to the densest level. So what do we call these six something? And the way you just put it, it we keep coming back to the circle, which was our very first episode. Remember, Leo, we talked about the circle. And and Brenda, you keep coming back to, it's the finger pointing at the moon. I love how we have these themes that, that we return in each episode. I, I love that image of the circle where the first perspective might be that Jing is the channel. And then another one is, yeah, Jing can also mean classic or canon when it's, applied to a text and then you know there's the the etymology people who are coming in and saying no it's the it's the the warp, the warp. In, a, in a piece of mm -hmm. fabric which is a wonderful addition to the and then there's the people who are like it's meridians it's brilliant because meridian is like a fancy english term and i think there is meridian is actually we've all moved on from meridian but I think Meridian, we all kind of poo-poo the people that now talk about Meridian because it's no longer trendy. But Meridian is actually a really nice way that's a lot more, it has a dimension beyond channel. That it's like this main structure for things to, to create order that flow through that's bigger than channel. But Meridian, of course, it's not the Meridian. So, yeah. Well, it's not any of those terms, but I, I want to point out something before I ask a question. And I want to point out that, you know, your emphasis was on people saying this person is wrong, you know? Yeah. And I think that the focus, you might actually gain more insight, not from focusing on the things that the people are attacking, but the fact that they're using the attack, they're weaponizing truth in order to justify or try to tell other people that they themselves are right and it's kind of a weird way of trying to it's of trying to gain authority 
and power. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's the only comment no, I want to make on that. Yeah. And I, Leo, I, talking about that, the way you respond, you have been responding on Facebook. I've dipped in and out of Facebook because I just can't handle it when people tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> when <laughs> when they really don't know anything. Like, it really triggers me when I'm like, listen, I've studied this stuff for 30 years and then somebody who doesn't know a word of Chinese is telling me, actually, you're wrong and, and it's not this. And, and they... But they have no basis for their argument. So they're like, you know, we're all pointing towards the circle. And then there's somebody pointing it instead of like, we're all trying to describe the moon from different perspectives. And then there's somebody pointing at the sun. And we're all talking about the moon and trying to figure out the moon. And there's somebody who's got a really loud voice who is presenting as an expert pointing at the sun. And I'm like, no, I'm out of that conversation because that's wrong. Yeah, or so, not even the sun, some random bird or something. Yeah, and and Leo, you have this beautiful way of responding that I've always admired, where you are not being triggered when somebody's pointing at something that has nothing to do, and you have you have this way of expressing your really really deep knowledge and expertise by inviting them to look at it. But think of it this way, that's not threatening, in, where you add your perspective in a way that I just, I've always really appreciated as a teacher, because you really know your stuff. And you could just say, please, you're pointing at something completely different. You have no idea what you're talking about, which is I'm, I'm much more blunt than you. And it shuts the other person down. It, that's the end. Then they just get defensive. And, and it's pointless. At that point, conversation is about you're right, I'm wrong. Nobody gets anywhere. And it just spirals. Whereas you have this beautiful way of directing conversations. And maybe that's in, maybe that's shaped by who you are as a cultivating Buddhist. I think there is always, I think, well, there's various ways of thinking about it, but for me, there are two aspects. One is compassion. Yeah. It's like I can, I can really see myself, yeah. you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, just as not, not informed, right? I can see myself when I was younger, much younger, I could not tell the difference because I didn't study the text as I have over the past you know, 10, 20 mm. years. I would have come to the same conclusion. I was like that. I really was like that. Very naive and very simplistic in my understanding of things. So, so that piece is like, I was like that too. So, so this person uh, perhaps deserve compassion and patience. Mm -hmm. So that's what arrived mm -hmm. for me. And we're all like that in various aspects of our lives. We might be very skilled and advanced in one dimension of life, but quite uh, a beginner in other aspect. And when I engage with people like that, I oftentimes, they oftentimes open up and start telling me why they thought the way they thought, which is a perception or a habit they acquired from a particular charismatic teacher, perhaps, many years ago. And that really imprinted upon them that particular piece of information, a way of thinking about things, which are no longer uh, current. Because we see that a lot of people are still using... Uh, information about Chinese language and culture from the 70s and the 80s. Mm -hmm. Or even earlier. Earlier, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so so when, when I engage in conversation with them, a lot of times they open up to me and said, oh, I didn't realize there's this new way of looking at things. So not accusing people in the beginning really makes them not defensive. Mm -hmm. And another aspect of it, which is also true, is that as I myself keep my uh, knowledge abreast and current with all the development that's coming out of China and other places, I realize some of the things that I understood 
five years ago is not complete anymore. It's not correct anymore because of new evidence, especially from the excavated and unearthed text from the past 20, 10, 10 years, especially. All the emergence. That's a lot, a lot of things that people don't realize is that it's, it sounds to me like a lot of our colleagues in the West think that Chinese medicine and Chinese language is dead stuff. It's like all the things that can be mm -hmm. spoken and known about it is already done, is a done deal. Whereas the, the fact is quite the opposite. Because of the emergence of all the excavated and texts that they recovered from the, the grounds in the past 10 years and from auctions, you know, stolen texts they recovered from auctions in Hong Kong, like the Qinghua Jian and the Shangbo Jian, we know so much about the life and the language of the Han and the prior now. It's enormous, that knowledge. But I don't think much of it will ever come through to the West. Not in the next 50 years. We don't have the people. Yeah, it takes a long time for that stuff to right? trickle and, over and to the West. Just to bring out one last point, is that the, the debate about Jing and Mai, what they are, we just had a breakthrough because the Lao Guanshan, the Tianhui Yijian that discovered from Chengdu has just been fully published last uh, in April. Oh, yeah? And the, if the discovery made in there will, will blow our mind. There is a difference now actually between Jing and Mai. Mean Jing, mm. yeah, okay, and yeah, it's yeah, yeah. carved on the, in the figurine. Shall we save this for another episode? Yes. Okay, okay, <laughs> that's that's a great thing. But I want to throw in one last question because I think it's important to think about, and maybe we can talk about it at a future time. I want to talk about the relationship between truth and centrality. Mm. The yes. idea of locus of truth and locus of truth in relation to every individual. Well, Leo, you explained this really beautifully with things pointing to the middle of the circuit, uh, the circle, circus, <laughs> and then sometimes things pointing away from the center. Is that, is that a good way to visualize your concern, Brenda? That centrality, as long as the perspectives are pointing towards the core, if we center the core in whatever, if the goal is to recognize authentic, the authentic meaning of a character or the authentic meaning of a Chinese medicine concept, then we can have these different perspectives that are in completely different places as long as they're aiming towards what, as long as what they're aiming towards is the, the concept in Chinese texts as opposed to something aiming at the, the pancreas. Well, I think that's a really good visualization. But I think it kind of opens this Pandora's box about how we understand truth and how we utilize truth. I mean, in your image, yeah. could we think about the Western concept of truth as being this outward focus and the Eastern concept of truth as being this internal focus towards a central point? But I really wanted to talk about is this centrality in relation to the individual themselves. So truth and centrality and the concept of space. You know, I, we, I talk in some other places a lot about in the Tao Te Ching, they talk about in chapter six, the, the valley spirit, you know, and how they talk about that's, that's where the spirit or the shun resides is in the valley. And so what is the valley? The valley is a defined space that's empty in the middle. You know, you got the two walls of the valley, and then that's not where the spirit is, not on the walls of the valley, it's in the space as defined by those two walls. And how does that relate to truth? And so that's a question that I'd like to explore at some future date. 
I think that's okay. I've duly noted two episodes: one on Jing versus Mai and archeo- and the archaeological innovations, and the other one, the centrality in relation to truth and the valley spirit. And um, yeah, and maybe we can talk a little bit of, about the idea of the genren, because I didn't get to return to that, and I would love to ask both of you how that works. <laughs> we'll never finish. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode of our podcast. If you enjoy these conversations, here are three suggestions for learning more. First, remember to subscribe to my newsletter at happygoatproductions.com connect to stay in touch. Also, if you liked this episode, please rate, review and share our podcast and join the conversation on our Pebble in the Cosmic Pond Facebook group. Second, If you can't wait until the next new moon for the next episode to drop, why don't you explore my Imperial Tutor Mentorship to listen to the exclusive Imperial Tutorial follow-up episodes that drop every full moon and receive, and in addition to the access to the episode, you receive an eclectic selection of relevant translations and all sorts of other benefits. Find out more at happygoatproductions.com slash imperialtutor. In this month's follow-up episode titled Poison and Palpation, Brenda, Leo, and I look at this this topic of integrating different levels of truth through three clinical lenses. Etiologies like fetal poison, taidu, spirits, and fulminant turmoil, huoluan, also known as cholera, palpation as a diagnostic tool, and treatments from Suyo incantations and exorcism to religious purification. Lastly, my two-year-long Triple Crown Classical Chinese training program starts this September 14th with the Foundations course. If, if you're at all interested in learning classical Chinese, check it out at translatingchinesemedicine.com or get in touch with me. Check out the show notes for all these links and now go out there and spread some positive vibrations between heaven and earth. <laughs>